if it's possible on Bitcoin, why would you not use like the most secure, most decentralized network to do whatever it is you want to do? So I think that naturally, as these things get enabled and built on top of Bitcoin, it will you know destroy 99% of these other coins out there. Maybe a few will survive. Welcome back to another episode of the Wichita Life Podcast. My name is Landon. Our first sponsor today is Il Primo Espresso Cafe. The weather is finally warming up, but it's still a great time for a drink, hot or cold. Try one of their specialty drinks like the Firebolt, which is Hershey's, cinnamon, cayenne, and two shots of espresso, or a spring morning mocha, which has a delicious blend of Hershey's, toffee, and marshmallow. Our next sponsor is Midwest Fresh Homes. If you need to sell your home and need some help, give Erica with Midwest Fresh Homes a call. Erica has years of experience in the Wichita area, and with the current market, it doesn't hurt to have some extra help and get the most out of your investment. Call Erica with Midwest Fresh Homes today. Today's guest is Graham Krizek. Graham is the founder and CEO of Voltage. Voltage is building out infrastructure for Bitcoin and specifically the Lightning Network. They also just raised $6 million in a seed round. We talked Graham's experience with Bitcoin, how he got started, and his journey to building a super important company in the Bitcoin space. Whether you believe in the potential of Bitcoin or not, for the record, I do. Graham is making huge plays in business and putting Wichita on the map. Enjoy my conversation with Graham Krizek. All right, I'm here with Graham Krizek of Voltage. How are you doing, Graham? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Can you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself to kick it off? Yeah, for sure. Uh, yes, yeah, so my name is Graham. I'm a, I'm founder and CEO of Voltage. Uh, I guess I'll start with me. Um, I grew up around here in Central Kansas, McPherson specifically. Um, went to Kansas State and uh, went on, you know, from there to kind of start a, a career in software development. Um, along the lines, uh, I have been, I kind of found Bitcoin like uh, early college days and found it really interesting. Um, it was kind of been like a passion project for me, you know, over the years. And um, then I, you know, my professional career is in software development, specifically kind of public cloud infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, start of 2020, uh, I kind of realized there's an opportunity to mesh my, both, uh, you know, what I'm interested in and what I'm good at. Uh, and so that's kind of where uh, I started Voltage. And, you know, for briefly what Voltage is, is a, a cloud provider for Bitcoin specifically. So we help companies that want to leverage Bitcoin in their applications or services or, or companies. Um, and we, we help them through, uh, you know, kind of products and services to help them incorporate Bitcoin into what they're doing. Perfect. That is a great place to start. Um, so I want to go back just a little bit, just so people can understand, um, mm -hmm. I mean, where you kind of came from. So you did not study engineering or computer science. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, actually, I went to Kansas State and got a business degree, um, specifically like operations and supply chain management, which is like in, you know, in the business school mm -hmm. there. Um, and then by... I kind of realized in college that I wanted to go and do like software engineering, but by that time it's kind of like too late. Like I would have had it's to like go it. through a couple more, yeah, a couple more years of college, like who knows how many thousands of dollars more. And so I was kind of like, forget it. I'll just graduate with a business degree and then hopefully I can, you know, get a job in software and grow from there, which I was fortunate enough to be able to do. Yeah. Uh, so did you teach yourself programming? Was it kind of like you got on it? One of the companies you started to work for and then learned it or what was that process like? Yeah, I pretty much taught myself. Um, I, you know, the first job that I got out of college was like a, it wasn't necessarily software engineering specifically, but it was kind of um, IT like administration. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was kind of like just a foot in the door. And then in my free time, I would learn, kind of taught myself to code and uh, kept digging into like the more deeper parts of software development and all of those things. So sure. um, a mix of professional and just kind of uh, yeah. teaching myself along the way. Yeah, for sure. I guess taking a real quick step, if somebody wanted to get started either just into programming in general or specifically maybe programming to kind of get into the Bitcoin or Lightning space, what language would you recommend people get started in? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good question. I think that it really yeah depends on your use case and what you want to do. Um, I mean, generally speaking, like I love like the Go Golang programming language and Python. Mm -hmm. Um there's some other really new ones like Rust and whatnot that are that are super great. But you know, regardless of what you wanted to learn, um, if you were doing more front end stuff, it would be like more JavaScript or something yeah. like that. Um, but there, there's tons of good courses and you know resources online now that even you know didn't even exist not not that long ago when I started. Um, so there's a lot of good resources to do that. You know, when you think about Bitcoin or like Lightning specifically, a lot of those are written in um, Go or C. Um, right. 
So yeah, those are just cool. some, yeah. some high level ones. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, I've dabbled with Python a little bit here and there, but I'm not proficient enough to actually do anything. So I'm always curious kind of where people got started or what they use. But um, so Bitcoin, you mm-hmm. got into it early college years. Um, I think we are the same age. Were you 2011 high school? Uh, tw- uh, yeah, 2011. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're the Sorry, same I age. Had to, so. I didn't think about that for a second, but yeah. <laughs> no, you're fine. So I think the first, I'm trying to think back of when I first heard about Bitcoin. And I think it was probably probably 2015 is when I first heard about it just through roommates that were kind of messing around on tour or, um, and then after that was a wired article that was talking about the whole like American Kingpin, Ross Ulbricht, um, Silk Road stuff. And so I think that's the first time I really heard about it and didn't really get into it. I was just like, wow, that's kind of interesting. But I think I still had like that bad perception a little bit. Like it's super interesting, but also like this is about mm-hmm. drug dealers essentially is the kind of the gist I got. Um, and then kind of got into it a little bit later, but what, how, I guess if you might not even remember how exactly you, you kind of found it, but what were your early thoughts? Were you thinking this is kind of something cool to dabble in or is this like world changing potentially technology? Yeah. Uh, when I first found out about it, it was just through some like online forums or something. And I just found it super interesting from the technology standpoint of mm-hmm. just, you know, this, uh, peer-to-peer electronic money that, you know, can be sent, you know, to anyone in the world um, trustlessly where you don't have to, you know, trust the central bank or anything to uh, transact in it. And so from the tech tech perspective was really where I got um, Mm -hmm. linked into it. And uh, at that time, I think Bitcoin was about like $5 a piece. And uh, it like, I I remember the day where Bitcoin got over $20 and I thought that like, this is getting expensive. Like this is kind of like a, this hobby is getting expensive. Um, Right, right. Which is crazy to think, you know, right now we're we're recording Bitcoin's at like $36,000, all-time highs are like around $60,000. So um, when I was using it, it was really from a technology perspective. I didn't yeah. really, um, I understood it from a lot of like the uh, personal like enablements and, uh, you know, a lot of the things that it brought to the world, mm-hmm. but I didn't really have the foresight to think about how it could, how the impact that it could have and how big right. it could really get and all those things. I just found it as this cool software project. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of how I first came about it. Um when you think about like the early, you know, early stages were around like Silk Road and things like that, um, which is just kind of, uh, I think that's how a lot of like just the new technology goes is they kind of, it kind of starts off in like, you know, the, the darker corners the of shady, society. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then it kind of like uh, legitimizes itself and grows from there. Um, and so, you know, those are, those are, I think nonetheless, those are really interesting times in the ecosystem of Bitcoin and have really um, been, it was really kind of the first use of it in, in a real way. So there's, I think there's still things to learn out of those. Um, so uh, it's, it's really interesting just to see how it's evolved over that time. Yeah, for sure. I, it's just crazy to think, I think putting a price on kind of when you first found out about it or you first got into it is kind of crazy to put in perspective to people like, how early each stage is. So like yours was whatever, 2012, 2013, whatever that was when it was like five bucks a pop. It really puts it in perspective when we've been around 50,000 ish the last year, plus or minus, it's kind of crazy to think about. And then there's kind of like the, the class of 2017 is what I consider myself in, which again, I don't own a ton of Bitcoin or anything, but that was kind of when I started buying, because even before that, I remember I was thinking about buying like late 2016. I want to say it was around like a thousand dollars, but like, even then I think Coinbase was around and like, that was the easiest way to use it. But even that, I was just like, how do I buy this? Like this, why is it so difficult to try to figure out how to buy this? So like took me long enough to talk to a friend that had bought some to figure out what the easiest way to buy this is. But it's crazy to think how far we've come. Now you can buy it on Robinhood or PayPal or Cash App, like how Mm -hmm. easy that is to buy now compared to back in the day. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that it's, you know, especially even in the last year, it's really gone. I mean, it goes more mainstream every year, right. um, but you're right. I mean, it used to be something that was just, you know, not well understood and that that's still like a struggle and we're still like working on things like that, but um, just the ac- access to it and the integration mm-hmm. of it is just getting, you know, further and further along in a lot of these, you know, more mainstream apps. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been, um, really crazy to think like when I was first like buying Bitcoin, I had to like send like a money order to like Russia and then they would like, just trust them to like actually send me like the Bitcoin back and things like that. So yeah, we, we've come a long way where you can just like, just buy it in cash out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That you saying that reminds me of the, uh, uh, Sam Bankman Freed story and how he mm-hmm. basically became a billionaire arbitraging and going to whatever South Korea or wherever he was buying it. Cause there was a price difference and now he's like the youngest Bitcoin billionaire or something like that. It's just, it's crazy mm-hmm. to think of how, how much money is in the space and how it can just change the future of money essentially. But um, so yeah. coming to, I guess, coming to voltage, can you explain the lightning network network a little bit? Um, 
I would try to explain it, but I'd probably butcher it. So I'll let the expert mm-hmm. go over it a little bit, but explain the lightning network a little bit for people who don't understand. Yeah, sure. So um, the, the lightning network is, is what's called, it's a layer two scaling solution on top of Bitcoin. So I'll first kind of describe Bitcoin a little bit. So you have the context, Please, but yeah. um, on in the Bitcoin base layer, um, it's a you know, globally distributed public ledger. So it's like the most uh, secure computing network in the entire world. And through that, uh, every transaction that happens on the network has to be validated by everyone. So, you know, basically no one can steal money from anyone else and everyone agrees on kind of the, the state of the, the global ledger. Mm-hmm. Um, for those reasons, for it to be so secure and immutable to where no one can, you know, steal funds from anyone else, there's some natural trade-offs that have to happen. And that comes with uh, its uh, speed in transactions and then also uh, the some fees involved where you, you sign on the Bitcoin base layer, you have to pay some fees for uh, the miners to include it in, in blocks, essentially. Mm-hmm. So um, for those reasons, it makes a very, very good um, store of value and uh, an, a great way to send like large amounts of money across the world for very little fees. But if you think about it, um, interacting more in a day-to-day sense where you want to buy a cup of coffee with it or um, just you know integrate it into certain applications or something like that, uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't really bode well. So like have to wait, you know, maybe 30 minutes for a transaction to be officially confirmed and, mm-hmm. um, paying large fees for a cup of coffee or something like that. So that's why the lightning network got created was, uh, it's a layer two solution that, uh, still keeps the same decentralized properties of Bitcoin, but it allows you to transact much quicker. Like it's, it's instant transactions that are, you know, fractions of a cent, um, so it's quicker and, and cheaper than the Bitcoin base layer. And then you still get all the same assurances of uh, Bitcoin and that, you know, it, it can't be modified or, or stolen in the middle or something like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, really, that, you know, at, at the end of the day, that's what the Lightning Network was created to do was to enable Bitcoin to be used in a lot new ways of both just, you know, faster transactions, but also enabling a lot of new technology to be built on it. So an example is like we have a, a social media platform that runs on us that, uh, uses the Lightning Network as their messaging protocol. And so uh, it attaches uh, a dollar value to every message that's sent on the platform. And that's, you know, that's like fractions of fractions of a cent, mm-hmm. but it helps in that uh, the chat, the, the social network is decentralized. So no one can kind of do censorship or stand in the middle of, yeah. you know, two people communicating, but then it also prevents spam because there's yeah. a dollar value associated with each message. And so it basically eliminates spam because it becomes cost ineffective to start sure. spamming uh, the, the communication. So, uh, the Lightning Network was basically created for a lot of reasons, um, and those are just you know kind of several to basically enable more use cases on top of Bitcoin. Okay, that's super interesting, and I have not heard about the. I've heard of people mentioning ideas of that social media stuff. I didn't realize there was stuff like kind of in the works already. That's super interesting because I think that's a huge thing on Twitter. Like it's cool you can now tip via Lightning, I believe, um, and do some stuff like that. But like if you go to Elon Musk's tweets, like almost half of the comments probably or the replies are Elon Musk with like a dollar sign is the S or something that looks very close to his name and saying, if you send me one Bitcoin, I'll send you two Bitcoins, all the spam and stuff. But that helps solve that, which is really cool. And Mm -hmm. kind of the micropayment aspect of it, I think, which is a huge thing in the future, especially it can make uh, is doable now because of lightning. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that there's, I mean, the, the use cases for it are, are, are infinite in my opinion. Um, but it's, it does like, you know, when you think about microtransactions where, you know, it's not very effective, it's not very efficient to send five cents, like on your credit card or a check or something like that. Like that's kind of ridiculous. Um, but with like the lightning network, you know, you could send easily send like five cents, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it'd be no big deal. Yeah. Um, and so when you think about that, like in the real world, think about like a, a, the Wall Street Journal or something. You know, if you hit like one of their paid things, you have to mm-hmm. pay like five bucks a month to like read their articles and stuff. And it's like, I don't want to pay $5 a month to read yeah. this one article. I just want to read this one specifically. And so, you know, with the Lightning Network, you could pay 10 cents to read this one article. And, you know, it's it, it could be very, um you know, native to the web. So you it might even be seamless where you don't even kind of know that that's happening. Yeah. Uh, and then it's also you know, you can pick and choose what content you want to, you know, view or, or subscribe to um, and pay for, you know, strictly that not to be bundled into some bigger thing that you don't really want. Sure. That's awesome. Um, so Voltage leverages the Lightning Network. So who are your customers? Are they mostly like bigger like companies? Are they like everyday people? Who are your customers for Voltage? And I guess what exactly does Voltage do then setting up nodes and so forth? 
Yeah. So Voltage is like a, we're a hosting provider right now. We're, um, we're working on creating sort of a, a holistic platform for people to run on the Lightning Network and, and use it in a lot of different ways. So a good comparison that, that you know, I like to make is uh, we're kind of like the AWS for Bitcoin where, um, you know, usually you go to a website, you don't know that it's hosted on AWS. You don't really interact with AWS directly at all. It's just, you know, these people that are hosting their applications on it. We're very similar on the Lightning Network and, and for Bitcoin. Um, and so a lot of our customers are more um, developers or businesses that are trying to incorporate it, you know, into their apps or sites or things like that. Uh, we have a few like kind of individual like retail customers that um, want to interact with the Lightning Network just on a personal level, just to be able to like send and receive from like mm-hmm. their own wallets. Um, but those are those are a, a little bit more sparse than, you know, a lot of our business comes from businesses that are trying to incorporate this technology. Um, and so a good example is like we have a, a gaming company where uh, they write kind of mobile games. And as you're playing like their racing game, you're kind of collecting tokens along the race. Those are like real Bitcoin that you can cash out at the end of the game. Um, so it's an incentive mechanism for people to play the games and you get rewarded for playing the games. Um, we handle the Bitcoin and Lightning infrastructure for them so they can just kind of integrate that those services directly into their games and not have to worry about a lot of the technical complexity behind it. Right, right. Um, so, just what's, it's like a coffee shop, for example. Would it make sense for so like a coffee shop if they wanted to accept Lightning payments to go set up a node through you guys, or is that something they would use like I don't know, like a Strike or somebody like that that's already maybe built on Voltage nodes? What level would would that be good for like a, a coffee shop or like a like if I wanted to set up a node? Yeah, um, I mean, we could definitely you know service those solutions. Like we could we could definitely do that. I think it comes down to what kind of the level of interaction like the coffee shop owner would want yeah. to go into um because right. there's uh more like you know custodial solutions and you know an important distinction in the bitcoin community is like custodial versus non-custodial right. essentially who is holding those funds whether it's you or a different company right. um and so there's custodial platforms out there that make it you know pretty easy to integrate and use and those are you know those are fine and they even do like kind of converting to from bitcoin to dollars if you wanted to do that um, we are more uh, kind of lower level where we don't really, we don't have any conversion mechanisms right now to convert gotcha. to dollars. So if yeah. you were accepting it, I mean, you'd either have to hold on to it as Bitcoin right, or, right. you know, send it off somewhere to convert. Um, but regardless, it kind of just depends on what you're, what you're trying to, uh, what level you're trying to integrate at sure. and kind of how, yeah, yeah. how you want to, what you want to do with that Bitcoin once you receive it. Do you want to just convert it to dollars right away or do you want to just hold it, you know, as as an investment for later on. No, that's a great point. That helps a lot. Cause I think a lot of people, I don't know, it's, it's weird. Cause it's like people value Bitcoin. A lot of people that maybe not necessarily believe in Bitcoin fully, I guess they mm-hmm. care like, okay, they care that Bitcoin is $50,000. And so as soon as they get that, they want to cash it out or they're afraid to send that Bitcoin because it could go to $500,000. So it's, it's always interesting mm-hmm. to hear like kind of how people view that and how that would work. But if you're keeping it in Bitcoin, that's one, one thing. So that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah. And I, I think that there's like, I, we, so we, we accept like Bitcoin payments for our services as well as like credit cards and things yeah. like that. And any Bitcoin that we receive like for, you know, payments for our services, we just keep in Bitcoin because I mean, we're obviously big believers in it. We think that, yeah. you know, the price is going to appreciate over time. So we see it as, you know, that $10 subscription that just got paid, is going to be, you know, that'll be worth $50 and maybe in a, a few years or something. So we kind of see it as an investment as well. Sure. Sure. Um, is there a world where I don't know, like a Shopify integrates, like, like goes through voltage. And if there's, again, I have no idea what's going on. Maybe you're working with Shopify in the background. I don't know, but like somebody <laughs> like that, like a bigger platform like that, is that something that you would work with like real high, high level? Cause that, I mean, Shopify is obviously huge. Like somebody like that, Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. We could, those are kind of the type of companies that we're kind of going after, yeah. I guess. Um, yeah. So yes, we could definitely, um, you know, help a, a Shopify situation to, you know, integrate lightning and get the, get the, all the plumbing uh, yeah, yeah. situated so they could start accepting those payments. So we do work with people like that. We also work with, you know, the smaller people that it's just, you know, a, a single dev yeah. that has an idea on an app and, you know, we kind of go through that process too. So cool. we were, I think we're pretty uh, scalable in terms of, you know, what the solutions that we offer and, you know, what, what stage that we come in at. Yeah, for sure. We, we had lunch a while back and you mentioned 
in 2020, when you kind of kicked this off, you came up with the idea essentially because you were trying to start a lightning node yourself and realized how difficult it was and there, there just wasn't a good solution. So you guys kind of stepped into a really good market, obviously, with a huge 2021, which we can talk about. But it, has anyone else kind of stepped into the space as a competitor or are you guys still kind of the top dog as far as setting up lightning nodes right now? Um, yeah, I, there's like there's been services that are similar. So there's sort of been some competitors um, come up. I think that we're still kind of uh, the the for, at the forefront of that. Yeah, so yeah. Um, there's people coming online, and we're even um, you know we we've learned a lot over the last year you know year plus of of running this, and you know we've learned a lot about what what not to do and, and what to do. So right. we're taking a lot of those lessons, and we're kind of reworking the platform now. And so the next you know the next year, I think our platform platform will look very different um, than it does today and in a very good way where we can, you know, enhance on what a lot of people are wanting to see. Um, How do you guys make money? Is it just setting up the node initially? Is there a recurring fee to just like operate the node, I guess? Do you guys take fees of each transaction? What does that look like? And, And I guess how much are fees on Lightning Network? I know they're very small compared to either Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, but what is that process or what does that look like? Yeah. So for us, we we uh, we make money basically from a subscription. So we, uh, you know, when you come and set up a node, it's, it's like similar to an AWS or something where yeah. you just pay okay. for the okay. amount of time that it's up and right. uh, you're just kind of charged for your usage. Um, so uh, our revenue model is pretty straightforward and it's mm-hmm. essentially just a subscription to run a node. Okay. Um, and then uh, as far as like, you know, fees on the Lightning Network the, itself, their uh, fees can be as low as zero. Like people... Uh, it's kind of up to the people on the network, what they charge for fees. Everyone can have their own fees that they set on their own node. And um, you can route through certain people and not route through other people. So fees could be as low as zero where no one charges a fee and people and fees could be as high as people want. But generally speaking, it's like, you know, fractions of a a percent um, uh, on a fee. Uh, So most people are probably whatever, accepting or sending payments. Are there people in the Lightning ecosystem that are setting up nodes to make money? Or is that really kind of a lost cause because of the goal of Lightning Network? Or are there people that are like, okay, I'm going to set up 100 nodes. And if people go through this, I'll shave off a fraction of, and they'll be like, I don't know, the Visa or whatever of Lightning and kind of make a living that way. Yeah. there. I mean, there are people that like, I think that, you know, the term is kind of like routing. So when you, you're in the yeah. Lightning Network, you can route payments for other people through your node and you can charge like the fees for routing through your node. Um, and that generally, uh, there are people that are kind of spinning up nodes to do very, very good routing and charging mm-hmm. a fee for it and, you know, collecting some, some money for that. I'll say right now, it's pretty difficult to be a very good router and, uh, the money that you make on it is generally not very much. Yeah. Um, just because like the network is optimized to be as cheap as possible. So it's right. kind of, right. you got, you got to do like substantial volume and things like that to actually make, you know, a, a decent amount of money. So, uh, that being said, people are doing it. Um, right. It's just a pretty involved process. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. Um, so like I said, the 2021 was huge for Lightning. It was kind of like a parabolic exponential growth as far as how many nodes and um, total volume and everything like that. Um, how big is the Lightning Network? Like how many nodes are there? I don't know if capacity is a number you know or have a rough idea, but how many nodes are there in the network? Mm-hmm. Uh, last time I checked, I think there's like eight, just over 18,000. I think we're probably approaching like 19,000 nodes on the network right now. Um, and then as far as capacity goes, man, I haven't, I haven't looked in a while, but I think last I checked is like $300 million, at least like locked into yeah. the lightning network. So, um, and like all of those numbers have like at least doubled more than doubled over the last year. So it has been a, a huge growth year, you know, in 2021 for lightning. Very cool. And so with the, the routing, something I think is interesting. I watched a YouTube video to try to understand just a little bit better the lightning network. But so like if you and I each had a node, we could have direct payments, but we, do, we wouldn't have to necessarily set up a direct link between the two of us. We could route that through whatever the web, optimal web kind of takes us route. Um, mm-hmm. I guess I don't know what my question is, but it's kind of interesting. We don't have to have a yeah. direct connection, right? Because that would be a kind of a pain if you have to connect directly to everyone you wanted to send money to, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of uh, how the Lightning Network works is you essentially create payment channels with other nodes on the network. And what, mm-hmm. and what a payment channel is, is essentially you and the other party locking in some amount of Bitcoin into the payment channel that you can then use to transact back and forth in the Lightning Network. Sure. And you're right that if if everyone that I wanted to send a payment to, I had to create a payment channel with, it would be very cumbersome and it would be just like really annoying to use. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 
uh, in the Lightning Network, you can route through other people. So for example, if I wanted to pay McDonald's and I don't have a channel to McDonald's, but you have a channel to McDonald's right. and I have a channel to you, I can pay McDonald's through your node. Mm -hmm. um, and then that's where you could collect fees on me routing through you if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially, uh, when you think about that, like kind of at a global scale, you're right that it's like just this huge spider web of like decentralized yeah. nodes and people have channels to random people. And I could, you know, I've sent payments that hop through 10 different nodes across the world and end up where I was meaning right. to pay. So right. it's really cool to see it in action where um, none of these people really know anything about each other. And I'm just, I'm able yeah. to pay this specific person, but it gets routed around the yeah. world um, to, to get there. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so something we mentioned was like the social media app um, kind of built on you guys, which is built on Lightning. Um, what can Lightning support smart contracts, I guess? I, I'm not super deep in that, but I know obviously there's like Ethereum and Solana and Cardano and everything else or like Stacks, which is like the Bitcoin smart contract platform. Um, is there a limitation to what Lightning can do that maybe some of these other ones can do? Like, can they do all the smart contracts or DeFi or NFTs or whatever else that these other ones can do? Or is there a limit to what Lightning can do? Um, so like, yes and no, like there's, uh, there are some limits today on what's possible on lightning, but it's really a matter of just, uh, protocol development to mm -hmm. enable a lot of these other things. So everything that you just mentioned and everything that's possible on these like other networks are possible on like Bitcoin and lightning. Mm -hmm. Um, just some things need, uh, some like protocol level changes to, to sure. enable those. Yeah. And for anyone that's not familiar, like protocol level changes in Bitcoin or lightning is like a multi-year process because, you know, this is where Bitcoin is made to be like this, the, you know, a, a, an unchangeable uh, globally distributed ledger that like, right. you know, you, you need to have trust in it that uh, Bitcoin is not going to ever kind of just fail or, you know, right. just all, all uh, tons of different reasons. Um, but so for that reason, the developers and everyone that works on Bitcoin uh, take very, very you know, they're very careful about making changes to the protocol and everything needs efficient review yeah. and testing. So for that reason, a lot of those changes take a long time, but uh, I think that that's kind of the way that it should be where some of these like other protocols that you mentioned just kind of fly, fly by the seat of their pants and just do all of these things. And naturally you right. see breakage in their, in their blockchains. Right. Um, and so Bitcoin takes a little bit different approach where we're going to build um, a, an incredibly stable base layer and then right. build on top of it over time. And so that's kind of why, uh, it's just taking a little bit more time, but it's, sure. it's really out of safety more than anything. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, what is your viewpoint, let's say 10, 20 years down the road? In, I guess, in my opinion, there's probably a handful, I mean, five, 10, a hundred maybe coins that'll survive in the next 10 years or even a, the next couple of years versus the, hundred, I don't know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands there are right now that are just kind of the mm -hmm. dog coins and et cetera. Um, do you think, Bitcoin eventually kind of eats all of those then if, if it can be developed slowly, but surely. Um, and we don't need to name any specific names because I know people are yeah. very religious about their smart contract or their, uh, their blockchains, but do you think eventually Bitcoin kind of swallows everything up? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking of Jason Taves here as well, because I know that he, <laughs> he, he and I talk about this a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I think mean, this is a great question that he'll, he'll, he'll enjoy my answer to, but uh, I think that there, there will probably be like, I think there will be a world where there's several chains um, yeah, more than absolutely. just Bitcoin, but you know, we, I don't know how many you have to say like thousands. Um, I think yeah. that um, a lot of those are going to go away. Uh, I think uh, all of the use cases that we see being built out on other chains will be possible on Bitcoin just in a matter of time. So yeah. um, when you think about all the functionality that is exists in other chains, um, if it's possible on Bitcoin, why would you not use like the most secure, most decentralized network to do whatever it is you want to do? So I think that naturally, as these things get enabled and built on top of Bitcoin, it will, you know, destroy 99% of these other coins out there. Maybe a few will survive. Um, and I, I, see, I see this as kind of like pretty similar to like the internet bubble um, yeah, to where sure. there's just like just so many companies out there a lot of them don't really provide a whole lot of value. And then there's gonna, there was this big you know, bust where yeah. most of the companies got wiped out. The ones that were truly valuable, like the Amazons, you know, stayed through. And that's kind of the way I see it yeah. with, with this as well. Is a lot of these are going to go away and Bitcoin will be you know, one, of, one of the few survivors. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. What is, I guess, what is your view on either the, the term or the, I don't know, the space of Web three or DeFi NFTs. Do you do you even spend much time? Are you too busy building 
voltage to even give that kind of stuff much thought. Yeah. I mean, like in the like Ethereum space and all the other ones, I really don't look at it that much. I'm, you know, I'm yeah. pretty focused on Bitcoin and I'm just, you know, we're, our company is focused on making Bitcoin better and enabling all right. of these things that I just kind of mentioned. So yeah. we can build these things on Bitcoin. So we're very focused on Bitcoin. Um, I, I don't keep track a whole lot with what's happening in, in the other spaces i just you know i kind of hear it here and there um so Mm -hmm. we yeah we 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 really focus on bitcoin so how do you think lightning becomes more mainstream then i guess it's obviously blowing up and it's going in the right direction but how does it become more mainstream or like how does it take market cap or market share from i don't know like venmos or cash apps or zelle or anything like that um i guess how do you think that continues to grow yeah, um, you, you're right. I mean, the adoption has already been, I think, outpacing, you know, even what I expect or, and things like that. Like El Salvador right. made Bitcoin yeah. legal tender this last year. And um, a vast, vast majority of the transactions happening in El Salvador are on the Lightning Network. Um, so it's already being used even, you know, even more so than I expected. And so I think that uh, over time, it's just going to continue to be adopted like little, little by little, like, like we mentioned cash app just announced support for it. So I think it's going to be like kind of a slow and steady process uh, that will, you know, will bring adoption over time where I think that, you know, maybe, maybe it doesn't necessarily kill the visas and PayPal's and all these things, but I think that they'll either they'll adopt it um, and like they'll integrate it because I think they see that as it's either going to, ruin them or they can get on board and start leveraging that technology themselves. Do you think the average person, um, I guess, so Bitcoin, obviously the biggest thing is that it is immutable and it's truly decentralized. Like Satoshi kind of dipped out. Nobody's running it. Uh, the community runs it as a whole. Um, do you think the average person cares about decentralization or are they just, I don't know, do they, are they just happy with kind of the status quo of, okay, I guess we pay 3% and we use our credit card or whatever that is. Um, do you think the average person cares about that? I think, I think that everyone does care about that. It's just a matter of when they come to realize it and mm. kind of their life or their experience. Um, Cause like, I think that there's a lot of people that will say that they don't, but I think that there will come a time where they, uh, they get their bank account frozen or they mm-hmm. like, if they're a small business and they're getting eaten up by the 3% fees or, um, whatever it is where they're, you know, maybe in a, an oppressive state, you know, it's not, that's outside of the U S where they just come and seize your bank account, mm-hmm. things like that. I think that, um, I think it matters to everyone. It's just a matter of whether they've kind of woken up to that or had an experience that has triggered that for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, once you come to realize that, uh, that Bitcoin is a, it, it's exactly what you said of this immutable decentralized network that is the most secure network in, in the world, and that it provides some very serious value for for everyone in the world, and especially in these like oppressed countries and right. third world countries, um, to where you know I can send from me to someone in in Paris instantly yeah. for for very little. Um, it, I mean, it opens up a lot of doors, and mm-hmm. for me to have complete control of my wealth at all times, where I'm mm-hmm. not trusting my bank to not um, yeah for sure you know loan out my money and then lose it all, or um, a government to come and seize my bank account and take all all of what I have. I am. 100% in control of my wealth, which is you know not possible anywhere else. Especially even if you hold your entire wealth in cash, well, that's getting inflated away, you know, like crazy. Oh, yeah, and so yeah. when you think about uh, being able to hold your wealth, like you know, truly be in control of it, and then also the uh, the you know, Bitcoin has a 21 million cap on it. There can only ever be 21 million that exists in the world. And so when you think about that, and you know, more and more people wanting it, it's going to appreciate in value. So I think those all of those things combined make it very, very powerful. And I think that it's just a matter of time for people to kind of realize that and it, to click for them. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's something I always, I, I have debates and I, with family members or friends or coworkers, I, I try to convince some coworkers to buy Bitcoin. And so they're like, well, what's the price going to be? I'm like, well, let's just look at it this way. I, I can't tell you what the price is going to be. There's no, I don't have a crystal mm-hmm. ball. Um, but if you look at, again, there's only 21 million Bitcoin are more and more people buying it every day and every year and more institutions, everybody coming into it? Yes. So by simple supply and demand, the price is going to be a lot higher in the future than it is right now. It's kind of where I, I shake out at it. Um, but saying that, yeah. do you have a price prediction? Does, do people ever ask you to kind of throw out a number? Or is that something you just kind of wave your hand over? Yeah. I mean, I, I really don't have, have a price prediction or anything like that. I mean, I think that you know I've, exactly what you said is correct, that um, it's a scarce resource. It's the most scarce resource in the world, even with mm-hmm. gold or something like that. We don't really know exactly how much gold exists in the world. 
Um, and so given that it's the most scarce resource, it is being a, you know, the amount that is created is being bought faster than it's being created. Mm -hmm. And so it's just naturally, you know, the supply and demand aspects of it are, it's certainly going to appreciate in my opinion. And, you know, when you think, when you look at it over the last, you know, 10 years, um, sure. It's very volatile, like it, and, you know, intermediate to years and everything like that. But historically, I mean, it's outperformed everything else, like, you know, at a, at a, big scale. And so um, I think that that's just going to continue over time. And, um, you know, it's, I understand this is a, this is a brand new technology. There's a lot to get your head around. Um, But I think that once you kind of learn it and and you understand all of, all the pieces of it, it's it's pretty eye opening. Yeah, for sure. You got to do your own research or learn the hard way. But uh, I think one thing that I always see on like crypto Twitter or whatever too, is like one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. It doesn't matter what the Mm -hmm. USD price is, especially if we are headed I mean, if the U.S. decides to print another, whatever, five or $10 trillion in the next year or two, I mean, that's just more and more stuff that's watering it down. But one Bitcoin will always remain one Bitcoin, which is kind of good to keep in the back of your mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you, yeah have any, do you have any view on uh, denominating in Bitcoin versus sats? I see that argument sometimes. And I think that is what drives people to buy like the Dogecoin or Shiba coin or whatever, um, because they're yeah. like, well, I can own a million of these. And it's like, okay, but yeah. you could own a, own a million SaaS just like that as well. So um, how do you, yeah. do you, do you think that's something that could be fixed to maybe, I don't know, it's not really fixed, just like changing how it's denominated on Coinbase or whatever, mm-hmm. just so people think they're owning a whole something. Because if somebody can only own whatever, a 10,000th of a Bitcoin, they're not necessarily as excited as it would be to own, own a million Dogecoin, even if it's worthless. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a good point. And I think that's something that's maybe good to clarify for people because we I, I hear that a lot of people think that you have to, Bitcoin's, you know, $36,000 say that you have to buy one Bitcoin. So you have to put $36,000 in to get involved, which is like definitely absolutely not true. Uh, Bitcoin is, Bitcoin can essentially be denominated infinitely, but right now we standard standard it out to like, I think eight decimal places. Yeah, yeah. So, which is even a fraction of a penny. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you can still, you can buy, you can buy $5 worth of Bitcoin. You can buy $10 worth of Bitcoin. Um, And when you say sats, a sat is like one, whatever, the eight decimal places out. millionth or something. Yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe it's 10 decimal pieces. I can't remember, yeah, whatever um, is, but yeah. it's a sat is a, yeah, it's a very, it's a very small fraction of a Bitcoin. And so, um, you can buy, you know, 10,000 sats for $5. Um, and so I think that, yes, it's, it's very much a mental game with people where, you know, a Bitcoin is too expensive for me to buy, which is like, mm-hmm. you know, that's not true. You just kind of got to think about it in, in a different way. Right. Um, so I think that kind of switching it and using, Sats as a as a standard is important, uh, especially because think about when if Bitcoin gets to a million dollars. Well, okay, then like that's like you know that's that's even the problem's even worse now where it's like okay this is like huge and um, if I want to pay for a hundred dollar thing like it's you know you got to do all this weird decimal place stuff. Yeah, yeah. So. I think that using sats is definitely important, um, both for the practicality of it, yeah. but then also kind of the mental game of you know all these other things that are yeah like dogecoin is like a one cent or whatever (laughs) right right i think if it's if bitcoin or if or when bitcoin hits a million dollars i think a sat equals a cent so it's kind of a cool way Mm -hmm. to look at it is like that's a kind of an interesting way but um do you i guess what advice would you have for somebody that maybe wants to crack into the bitcoin space maybe work in the bitcoin space do you have any advice um i've seen i know i haven't watched in a little while besides your interview last week but um pomp's best business show um, I know he used to really push his, uh, I think it was like pomp crypto jobs or something. And a lot of those, mm-hmm. you don't even necessarily need much experience, but do you have any advice for people that wanted to start working in the Bitcoin space? Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. Working. I think pomp also has like a crypto, like course, like a school That's kind right. of thing that kind of like yeah. educates you about it. Yeah. So I, I think that there are several courses like that out there. Um, I don't, I, I haven't really gone through them or like looked hard into them. So I can't really vouch for right. like the validity of them or how good they are. Um, right. But I think just generally like getting kind of your hands dirty and just researching um, about the space is like the best way. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, like we, we have jobs open right now that, you know, it's we're a Bitcoin company, but they're like business development and operations and things like that. They don't really need right. Bitcoin specific knowledge necessarily. Um, and so I think that there's still a lot of opportunity to work in this space regardless. Yeah. 
Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, there's just, there's a lot that you can kind of do on your own in your free time just to research and learn. Mm -hmm. Um, there's tons of books and there's, there's a lot of resources out there to to learn about it. I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, first off, congratulations on the seed round. You raised $6 million. That's really cool. Um, how was that process? Was that a learning curve for you? Cause obviously you have a lot of, I mean, it cloud infrastructure background, everything, but being a CEO and raising millions of dollars is a lot different. How was that process in the learning curve? Yeah. I mean, it it definitely was a a pretty new process for me and yeah, I definitely learned a lot in in the process too. Um, but it was overall like a really great experience. Experience. Um, you know, we had some, we have some really great investors um, with like, you know, Trammell Venture Partners out of Austin. Um, they're a great group of people that are very helpful. Then we also have like Google, Google Ventures uh, invested and then Craft Ventures. So we, we have a really good group of people that were very helpful along the process too. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're also very excited, you know, for us and what we're building. So it feels yeah. great to have that kind of support behind us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really helped. Like, uh, you know, there's definitely learning curves and, you know, things that, a lot of takeaways that we can learn from, but um, overall, uh, I'm just you know incredibly excited and incredibly fortunate to be able to have these people behind us and you know being able to uh, have the resources that we do to go and you know build out the vision that that we're making. So does a lot of that go towards like obviously some runway of whatever that looks like for salaries and marketing or whatever else? But is a lot of that going towards like these new positions that you have open? Yeah, yeah, we're definitely um, like a lot of this money is, you know, going to be geared towards like hiring, bringing more people on board and then fueling kind of like this next stage of growth that we're going through. So mm-hmm. uh, we have a lot of new products and new things that we're kind of ide- are in a, the idea stage that we want to build out. And so naturally to build a lot of those things, we need um, some extra engineers to, to work right. on those. Um, and so it's really, you know, dedicated to hiring out a team to go and kind of build uh, the vision that we have for the platform. And then I think once we get there, it's going to open us up to do, we'll have a lot of opportunities to integrate and, you know, do further selling and whatnot. Um, So this was the seed round. Is that correct? Yes. So you had previously raised a little bit of money to get started, right? What is that just like an angel round or what is that? Yeah. It's like technically pre-seed. The terms in VC are just getting kind of muddy and like all the, all of the rounds and all of these things are kind of getting um, a little uh, hard to keep track of, but uh, we did raise a pre-seed round earlier in I think Jan- January of 2021. Cool. Very cool. And that was pretty quick after you launched. Was that a necessity to raise money that earlier? Or was it just, you kind of got on somebody's radar pomp or whoever else kind of was early investor? Um, how did, were you kind of actively looking at or did they kind of come across what you're working on and you just needed some money? What was that process early, early? Yeah. Um, it, it was, it was a little interesting because I launched the product when I still like, I, I was working for Salesforce before I started the company mm-hmm. and I was still working for Salesforce when I was like making the products. And, uh, and you know, when we first launched, it was just kind of like this idea that I was seeing if, you know, is this a valid idea? Do people actually want this? Can I get customers, those things? Um, mm-hmm. and so, uh, I just kind of launched it just to seeing what it was like and, you know, got hooked up with, you know, some of the, the, a variety of people that uh, kind of like offered to invest and um, you know, taking on the investment was really what I needed to do to jump out and, you know, quit my job and go into this full time and be able to hire as well. So it was um, we were kind of rolling the platform. Um, We were, it was live before we had investments, but it was really an important step for me kind of diving in full time and um, being able to hire out the team and all those things. So it was a, it was a pretty, it was a pretty big moment. And it was like, mm-hmm. that, that was kind of like my first experience, like raising money before. So yeah. it was um, a lot of feelings all at once of like putting your job to do this <laughs> thing. That's like, not even, it's kind of like an idea, but yeah. it's, and so it, it was a crazy experience, but um, it, it was, it was awesome at the same time and learned a lot. Yeah. I imagine that feels like longer than a year ago. Yeah. That's yeah. It seems <laughs> like it, it's, it's really crazy how, um, how fast things move. I think that's probably just general for all like founders and people that are kind of starting companies is um, I can't believe that, you know, it's been a, been a year since, since that happened. Um, and it, it just feels like 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I bet. That's awesome. Um, so we're going to mix it up just a little bit. Um, I have a list of questions that I kind of ask all the people I interview. Um, I've cherry picked a lot of these from some of my favorite podcasts, like Tim Ferriss and so forth. So um, what is something you often recommend to people? It could be a book, a podcast, anything like that. 
recommend to people? Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, I think maybe fitting for this, this interview mm-hmm. is, um, reading for just learning about Bitcoin. So there's a book called the Bitcoin standard. Um, it's by Saifedean and he's, uh, it's a great explanation on kind of like why Bitcoin is important, what the problems mm-hmm. it solves is. Um, and it kind of, I think it answers a lot of questions that people have around like, well, you know, what does this all mean? Like, what is, you know, sure it's this tech that's out there, but like, what does it kind of mean at a lower level? Um, And so I think that book uh, answers, excuse me, answers a lot of those questions. Um, So that's that's what I recommend to a lot of people that are kind of interested in the space. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I will add to that, um, I just read that probably within the last few months and it's a great book. Mm. Um, And then one book I'm not, I'm maybe a fourth or a third of the way through, but is The Sovereign Individual. Um, yeah. which I've kind of had people recommend through the Bitcoin space. Um, but I think those two books is kind of like uh, a very good start. Like Sovereign Individual was written in, I think it was 97 or 98, but basically has nailed like how the US will inflate the dollar away and all this other stuff. Um, and how like there will be, they didn't use cryptocurrency, but it was like cyber money or something was the term they mm-hmm. used. But it was interesting how spot on it is with today. And then um, the Bitcoin standard kind of talks about, again, what Bitcoin is, what it solves, and et cetera. So I think those two books are two great ones to really get started in the space. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that that's another great recommendation. And you know, it, it's really crazy how a lot of a lot of these things have been kind of predicted like earlier on of like, you know, just the current economic state of yeah. the world and all all of that. So um it is it's 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 cool to read. It's also like it's it's informative and it's very helpful, but it's also just kind of like eerie of like yeah. oh, very how helpful. accurate some of this is. Yeah, absolutely. Um have you read Snow Crash? I don't think so. No. Okay. So that was another one of those one that's like, it floats around on crypto Twitter that I see about, but uh, it was kind of like, if you've heard or read or seen ready player one, it was kind of that Mm -hmm. metaverse beforehand, but there's kind of an interesting through line um, where it's like, if you create something, you can get paid for it. Like, through time, basically through micropayments and stuff. So like if somebody mm. got an audio clip and people check that out from like this virtual library, you're getting paid. But anyways, it was written in like yes. 1992. So it's super interesting looking back on it almost 30 years later, how micropayments could be, whether that's, um, you've mentioned it in some other interviews, like podcasting 2.0. So rather mm-hmm. than paying a subscription or something, you're just kind of streaming some sats or something else, a small payment to your favorite podcasters or people that write articles like the Wall Street Journal or so forth. But it's interesting to see like these books and the other things that predicted it years and years before this was even a real idea in Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, um, it is cool. I mean, it, it's great. And that, that's a great example too of, you know, what's, what's possible um, with this technology. I think that a lot of people, a lot of people saw it coming and had a lot of these ideas, but it just, the technology didn't exist then. And so mm-hmm. all they could do is write about it. And now, you know, right. we're kind of um, further along where this technology does exist and we can do um, actually make these things happen. Yeah, for sure. And I, I have some more questions, but take a real quick step back. Do you know who Satoshi is or who do you think Satoshi is? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know who Satoshi is. Um, and it's, there's also, um, there's a lot of arguments around why it's good that no one knows who Satoshi is and why we should never like try and find out. I'm sure there's people right. that are trying to find out, but like, it's good that, um, that this doesn't exist. Uh, it's not, there's no like leader to this. It's all right. community driven. Everyone owns it and you can participate in, you know, whatever capacity that you want to participate in. Right. And so it's kind of important that it has no leader because, mm-hmm. you know, there's no individual controlling it. And then there's no kind of, uh, when you think about like the Ethereum space, like, Vitalik is like the creator of it. And he's people kind of cling to every word that he says. And it's like, he is, he is a decentralized network and all these things, but he's definitely like still kind of has a, has a strong force in in how things play out. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's important for Bitcoin to be this truly decentralized global network that there really is no one at the helm and it's all community driven. Um, Yeah. So I think that's very important. Um, As far as, I I don't know who it is. Um, There's, there's uh, rumors or like there's ideas that it's like multiple people. It might be a group of people, not just one. Um, But then I think uh, almost an equally important person is Hal Finney, who is like the. I was about to say, if I had to pick one person, I think Hal Finney would be the one that I would think it was, but yeah, like I, I've kind of like gone, like, I mean, there, there's so many conspiracy theories out there about like, you know, <laughs> what's what, but um, he was like the first person to receive a Bitcoin right, transaction exactly. from Satoshi. Um, he died of ALS. I don't know what year he died, but um, it, it, it was a little while there, ago. Yeah. yeah. 12 um, yeah. And, but he was, he was like almost e- equally uh, as instrumental to like the Bitcoin project as Satoshi was. Um, so 
I mean, he's he's someone that has a real world identity that, uh, in my opinion, is just is equally as important. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And then there's like, I don't know, like the Craig Wrights of the world who are walking around saying they et cetera. But I guess something yeah. that I thought about earlier when we were talking. Um, obviously, you were in the Bitcoin space a lot way before I was, but something that I thought was interesting in like 17 and 18 was uh, like the Roger Ver uh, Bitcoin cash and some of those arguments, increasing the block size. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just, I don't think it clicked until we started talking here, but it would have been interesting if lightning was where it's at today, maybe, or or a little bit further along than it was. I don't even know when it started 18, maybe if like Roger Ver, who was such a big Bitcoiner early on, and then just saw whatever Bitcoin cash was the way to solve the throughput and everything else. Um, I don't know what he thinks of lightning yeah. and kind of what that would look like. It's kind of interesting to think about. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if he's made any kind of statement. I'm sure he's made statements on lightning. Like I'm sure, since yeah. then. Um, I don't know what they are, but uh, the whole, like, you know, for context, the block size war was people, there's a big divide in the community in Bitcoin of whether we should increase the block size of like how many transactions you can put in a Bitcoin block, um, which would increase scaling and do a lot of the things that the lightning network is kind of solving. Um, and a lot of people thought that we shouldn't. So there's basically a big divide in, in mm-hmm. the networking um, and whatnot. And so uh, it's, it was really, it was really sad to see Roger, I think, going the other way because he was this very important person in Bitcoin, a very yeah. gr- good advocate for Bitcoin early on. And then, uh, I mean, he just had different opinions, um, yeah. which is fine. It's just I, things got it a little nasty sad, at the though, end. Yeah. But. It, is, it is kind of sad to think about. But what is, do you or do you have a favorite failure? in any aspect of your life, it could be with voltage or maybe a different job, but your favorite failure. Um, I don't know if I necessarily have a favorite failure. I'm trying to, I, I think that it's, it's, I don't necessarily think I have a necessarily favorite failure. I think that what I really like to think about is like, I have, I mean, I have lots of failures, like lots of little failures. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that those, you know, cumulatively um, really shape like, you know, where I am today and like things with voltage, like, you know, we're, I'm still making mistakes and failures, you know, at voltage and like, you know, just working through it as we go. So that's a great question that I can't, pinpoint any one particular failure i'm sure like i'll have one after after the show or something but no, in yeah. general like i think that I, i'm one of those people that really takes um every failure like kind of and, and really tries to take a learning a lesson out of it um and so you know i think that there's been you know millions of small failures you know kind of yeah, yeah. build a, build me up to like where, where we are now um and so I, I i wouldn't say i have a specific one but you know cumul- cumulatively um, there's a lot there that, you know, have, have helped me. Oh, for sure. That's a hard one too. I put you on the spot. So I, I sometimes I'll provide these to people beforehand, but I like to put people on the spot too. Um, that's a good, I mean, that's a good question. Like I said, I'm sure I'll have like an answer to it. I'll just like, I don't, I don't know right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, for sure. Um, so the next one's kind of the, the flip of that. What is your definition of success or how do you, how do you define success in your life? Um, I define success. Like, I mean, I define success in voltage as just enabling more people to be able to get to know Bitcoin and use Bitcoin. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's, that, that could be like, whether it's, you know, through, through voltage itself, or just enabling people to get familiar with the space and then, you know, just explore and start building their own things or whatever it is. Um, I see that, you know, success is being, just increasing the people that just understand Bitcoin and, you know, are, are believers in the the technology and, you know, can, can see the value that it, that it adds Um, on a, on a more personal level. I mean, I, I just see, I just see success as like building up people around me. Um, I see that both like in my employees and then just like the greater uh, Bitcoin community, the Wichita community, the, you know, the startup community that we have here. I, I am, I really just define my success by how many people that I can help. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's a lot of opportunity there, you know, in, in all those like areas that I just listed. Um, and so that's kind of, that's what I see my job as, as a, you know, a CEO and kind of a leader is just um, none of this is possible, like without the people that, that I have with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and my job is just to enable them to do the best that they can. Like that's, sure. I think that's kind of at the root of a CEO's job is just to enable. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of how I define success is helping as many people as I can. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, tell me about a life motto that you live by or what is some of the best advice that you've received? Um, a, a, a motto, of, it, this is probably kind of cheesy, but like a motto that I like to live by is um, it's K-State's creed and it's, um, it's ruled by obeying nature's laws. And what I, what I kind of take from that is um, 
I want to do great things with my life, but I want to do them in a very good way. Like I don't want to become successful by cheating or stealing or doing any of those things. Like I see that as, you know, do great things with your life, but do them in a good way that benefits humanity and other people. Um, So it's kind of cheesy that I went to K-State and that's like K-State's motto, but it's something that I, you know, has really stuck with me over time and that I I think about often. No, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. And I think most of the best kind of life mottos are cheesy because there's a hint of Mm -hmm. truth through most of them or a a whole truth. So um, yeah. What is a habit that you've developed over the past couple of years that's most improved your life? (sighs) There's, I've, I've gone through kind of a lot of, you know, change, like kind of starting my company and stuff. And the, the biggest challenge is like figuring out like work-life balance and like, how do I, you know, this is, this is my, this is like my, my, my everything like work-wise. And so like, how do I make this um, successful? And like, how do I also have a life? Like I have a wife and kids and things like that. So um, I think that there's been a lot of changes that I've made uh, in terms of, you know, like kind of setting boundaries for myself as far as work goes um, mm-hmm. and being able to like try and disconnect as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, but then additionally, I've gone through, I go through uh, a lot of phases of, I've gotten really into fasting, um, mm-hmm. abstaining from like alcohol. I even take like cold showers, um, yeah. really kind of like really focusing in on like the important pieces of life and what I need to really um, hone in on. And I think that, you know, removing a lot of the excess of, you know, social media and, and um, you know, like snacking and all these other things, I think just really distracts you and gets you. I'm a person of comfort. So I like to just like find comfort and just like live there and like Mm -hmm. never leave. Um, And I think that that's not really, um, that doesn't help you grow as a person. Um, And so I really try and push myself to do new things to um, enable me to kind of take different perspectives and then also just grow, um, you know, professionally and personally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, What are some practical tips that you have learned, I guess, to kind of delineate the work-life balance as somebody that I believe you work from home most of the time. Um, I work from home a little bit now, but I think most people have moved to some sort of remote work, whether it's temporarily or permanently. What have you found that works for that? Is that kind of make sure you're in your office when you're working and you're not in your office, you're not working outside your office. What, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. I've, I've tried to stick with that rule, but it's like, it, that's, that's a hard thing to actually do. Cause like, you know, like with my kids, it's like, yeah. Well, like I, maybe I need to like watch my oldest, which doesn't really need a lot of supervision. So I'll just right. kind of work upstairs at the same yeah, time. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to actually set those boundaries <laughs> for real. Um, but one thing, one thing I'll say that I've just recently started doing that has like really changed my, my workday in general, not just work-life balance, but just my productivity in general is um, I use a, an application that limits like my emails to only come in at certain times of the day. I like that. So without that, you know, you have a constant stream of emails coming in all day long. They're always distracting of like, oh, I need to look at that right now. I need to like go do this thing, yada, yada, yada. And so it's just, it's constantly starting, starting and stopping your day. Um, yeah. I have it set up to where, you know, I get my emails at like nine, noon and three. And I have it even on my calendar of like nine o'clock, I'm going to process the email queue that comes in and I'm never looking at email again until noon. And then I'll process that. And like, um, that has been a huge productivity boost for me. So I recommend that to like everyone. Yeah. What, what is that called? Is there a name for that? The, the, there's like an app that's like a Gmail add-on it's called boomerang. Okay. I'm going to download that. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's been really great to have like set times where, you know, your, your email comes in like, like your physical mail. It's just like, yeah. okay, here's the time it comes in. I'm going to look at it and then I'm done. Yeah. I think cause it, it is super distracting, whether that's tech mess, text messages or emails, it breaks kind of the flow state. Like if you're in the zone and then you get an email in and it's not important, like it can wait, you can probably mm-hmm. wait till tomorrow, but it's like you go and take it right then because it's there and it's, yeah. it's easier to answer that than probably whatever you're working on. Um, that's very yeah. like, I think Tim Ferriss might've mentioned that in the four hour work week or something to kind of batch uh-huh. things like that and to check your emails in certain, I like that a lot. Um, yeah. I just got a couple that are kind of Wichita specific now. Um, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's kind of nice cause you haven't always lived here. So, um, yeah. what is your favorite part of Wichita or what's a hidden gem that you found in Wichita? <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. Um, so I really like, um, I feel like there's a lot of like good, um, like places to get restaurants, like restaurants and places to get drinks, like around town, um, uh, places, but La- lava and tonic is, yeah. is a cool place. Like it's really cool atmosphere and it's, um, they got good drinks and, and whatnot. So it's a, it's a, when you go in there, you don't feel like you're in Wichita. Um, cool. yeah. and so, yeah, that's a pretty cool place. I will have to look that one up. That's cool. Okay. That's not, nobody's recommended that before. So that's a good one. Good job. Nice. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess real quick uh, on that note too, are you an East Sider or a West Sider? I am East Sider. Okay. 
me too. East side for life. But, uh, yeah. and then the last, uh, local Wichita question, are you attached to century two or do you care about the outcome of century two? Um, I'm not attached to century two. And that's probably because like, maybe because I didn't grow up here. So I don't have the same attachments as some other people. Um, so I, I, I think I'm on like the side of like, let's like, you know, tear it down or do something with it like new. Um, uh, cause I think that, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to do some really cool things with, you know, the space in the area and whatnot. Yeah. So I'm, I, I'll just say I'm not attached to the century two building. So whatever comes sure. of that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see, but sure, sure. that's my view. That's fair. I, I did grow up here and, uh, I, I mean, I think it could be used a lot better. I think we'd be a lot cooler to have like a really cool park and build like a new performing arts center and everything else. But at mm-hmm. the, at the bare minimum, I would like us to just make a decision and move forward. Yeah. The, the <laughs> yeah. indecision is killing us. Yeah. Um, is there anything you wish Wichita had that it doesn't, or what would you improve about Wichita? Um, I wish, I wish I had an Apple store. Um, yeah, it's always sucks when I need to like go to, it's it's helpful to be in an Apple store sometimes and nearest one's like Kansas city. So, um, that's probably a pretty lame one, but that's something I've thought of many times is is an Apple store. I think there's a, was it simply Mac or something like that? It's like a authorized dealer, but yeah, it's not the Mm -hmm. same as an Apple store. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just the last question before we kind of, uh, send you off, but what does Wichita mean to you? Um, I mean, Wichita has really been, um, a, a community, which is, I, again, maybe, maybe I'm doing too many cheesy things here, but, uh, I, I see like Wichita is cause I've lived in like Denver and, you know, some other cities. And I think that, uh, Wichita is definitely the most community driven city I've lived in, like both in, you know, the Wichita startup community, um, in our own like local community, like with our church and things like that. Everyone here is very kind of welcoming and wants to, um, help and just be involved and, you know, do, do things together. Um, and so I see Wichita as being, you know, one of the best community driven cities, you know, that, I, that I've lived in. Awesome. I love to hear it. Um, Graham, thank you so much for coming on. I'm glad we could talk, talk Bitcoin, talk voltage. Um, where can people find you or find out more about voltage? Yeah. Uh, voltage, you can find us at voltage.cloud. Um, that's our website on Twitter. We're voltage underscore cloud. Um, you can find me on Twitter too. Uh, my, my handle is G K R I Z E K. Um, so yeah, you can find us there, reach out if you have any questions or like, you know, just want to, you know, say hi or whatever. I'm always interested in meeting people and, you know, teaching them about Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on. We'll have to do this again um, at some point in the future as the Lightning Network continues to explode and Bitcoin adoption and everything. Um, good luck with everything and look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Wichita Life Podcast. Check us out on social media at Wichita Life ICT or our website, wichitalifeict.com. Huge thanks to Jake B for editing and producing our podcast. Have a good one and we'll see you next time.